Our lifespan is increasing, but what about our health span, the portion of our lives in which we're healthy? Extend your health span with SRW, Science Research Wellness. SRW is a nutraceutical company that curates the latest science and research to formulate supplements designed to support the structure, function, and processes within our cells that change with age. SRW's cell range line, cell 1, cell 2, and cell 3, constitute the complete cellular system range which supports the nine areas of the cell to change with age, the nine hallmarks of aging. SRW's carefully selected cutting-edge ingredients and formulations support the aging process in a way that previous generations have not had access to. Learn more about the science behind SRW, the nine hallmarks of aging, and how you can find out your biological age by going to srw.co. That's srw.co. SRW, the science of aging well. srw.co. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to tackle a subject that uh, we really haven't touched upon. It's a very, very important topic in integrative medicine. We're going to talk all about the scientific basis of acupuncture, and today we have an expert. She's Dr. Janet Mindes, uh, who uh, is an expert on the physiology uh, behind acupuncture. Uh, she uh, trained at the Rosenthal Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine at Columbia University. There's really a crucible for uh, integrative medicine research uh, in the late uh, 1990s and early uh, 2000s. And as Associate Director for Education and Training, she actually uh, taught medical students and uh, doctors in training uh, about CAM, Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Uh, it seems that uh, the theme of her professional life is to uh, study and legitimize some of the practices that uh, we sometimes think of as unscientific, but really they are. Um, she is currently associated with the Tri-State School of Traditional Chinese Medicine, TCM, which is actually a place that I studied at uh, way back when, eons ago, during the 20th century, when I was uh, a medical student. I spent some time studying acupuncture and traditional uh, Chinese medical practices, including herbal medicine. Uh, and now she's there uh, conducting uh, research uh, and educating students about uh, how acupuncture uh, might work. So, uh, first of all, I, I also want to mention that uh, she uh, is my editor uh, in a great new book that's come out, Integrative Sexual Health. Uh, she, along with Barbara Bartlick and uh, Dr. Gio Espinosa, uh, they have been uh, the editors of this uh, wonderful compendium that's part of the Wild series on integrative medicine focusing on sexual health. And uh, so, uh, first of all, before we get into acupuncture, tell us a little bit about uh, integrative sexual health. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Dr. Hoffman. I do want to correct a couple of things you said sure. about me, but I'll hold that for a minute. I'll, tell, yeah. I'll respond to your uh, request to say something about integrative sexual health. Yes, uh, I and Drs. Bartlick and, and Espinoza uh, were the co-editors. We also co-authored some of the chapters. You are an author of one of the chapters, along with Ms. Uh, Leila Mweden from your office, 
And uh, we also happen to have, since we're talking today about Chinese medicine, there is a chapter even in our book about Chinese medicine used for uh, men's health concerns. So this book came about because uh, my two co-editors and, and authors, uh, Dr. Spartlick and Espinoza, are both sexuality experts and both have be, been involved throughout their careers with integrative medicine and how it may be of benefit in men's health, women's health, also in psychiatry and neurology, their respective specialties. And I personally am not a sexual expert. I want to make that clear. I'm a now a growing expert in integrative medicine research, and I have experimental training, and uh, that is research uh, training. And also, I was sort of the primary editor and science person on this book. So together, we made a very strong team. And we realized some years ago, this is a neglected area. And as Dr. Weil says in his foreword, Dr. Andrew Weil, whose uh, integrative medicine series this is part of, as you mentioned, for Oxford University Press, Dr. Weil said, no, this is an area that physicians get almost no training in, in the, during their four years and after in residency. If you don't become a specialist in sexual medicine, you know almost nothing uh, what you could offer patients except to refer to them to refer them to a specialist. And today we recognize that many of the limited in this area of sexual medicine, limited pharmaceuticals, limited procedures, whatever uh, devices that might be available for certain sexual problems, you know, they don't really address the picture well enough. And most doctors, again, know too little about integrative medicine. So we saw a really big need for this book. And as we put it together, our sense that we were on the right track really, uh, you know, deepened a great deal. Uh, so I could say more about the book. Maybe you'd like to comment a bit about it, about your chapter. But um, we're very pleased with it. Uh, we hope that it will reach many pro providers, that it will uh, influence them in their practice, give them new tools and new resources especially put sexuality into the context of integrative medicine. Many sexual problems spring from people's poor lifestyle habits, poor nutrition, not enough exercise. I'm not saying every sexual problem can be healed by people becoming healthy in general, but often that can help a great deal. And there are many solutions that are evidence-based. There's a ton of research cited in this book. Uh, we feel uh, it's a great new resource for people addressing anything in that area. And, and this is such a pervasive problem. And, you know, we tend to think of this as uh, an elder problem. You know, uh, as you get older, uh, sexuality wanes. Uh, but actually, uh, a big story in a British newspaper, The Mirror, it's kind of a clickbait tabloid story, but uh, it does illustrate the point. Headline, men in their 30s hit by impotence epidemic as half suffer from erectile dysfunction. Uh, the... Uh, Tagline on that is surprise polling reveals this age group is most likely to struggle keeping it up with 49% blaming stress, 24% blaming boozing too much. And yes, uh, lifestyle is a big factor. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, human sexuality is, is part of our portfolio of uh, optimal uh, performance and health. And it's also a reflection of one's uh, general underlying health. And that's why uh, when Task was writing a chapter on the relationship between diet and sexuality, uh, we really looked at the research and we found that, uh, you know, there are certain facts about uh, diet that related to sexual performance. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, that it, it, so, and your chapters, uh, you co-wrote some chapters in the book. Is that correct? 
Yes, that's correct. With Drs. Bartlick and Falk on a chapter mostly about the whole gut-brain axis and how this underlies mental health, mood. Uh, obviously, one's mood state is very related often to one's either sexual interest, sexual performance, uh, you know, other aspects of one's psychology and one's daily life that could influence uh, one's interest in sex or one's relationship to others around one that have a lot of implications for intimacy. So we co-authored that chapter and then with Dr. Bartlick and Dr. Sheila Haas, uh, there's a chapter, a very useful chapter that uh, really goes to another a major point about sexuality and modern life, chapter about how um, all kinds of micronutrient deficiencies can be caused by medications that people take, mm. uh, medications that they may need for their health, but maybe with better lifestyle and diet and some attention to these micronutrient deficiencies, which, you know, these depletions happen over time, taking a medication for a while. But these are very real uh, uh, phenomena supported by research. We put all that together in one chapter, and it's very, very compelling. And then a lot of those micronutrient deficiencies have sometimes direct or indirect or by several pathways an impact on sexual uh, performance and, and uh, uh, you know, the ability to uh, feel desire and so on. So, what, again, we tried to couch this whole sphere in this domain of people have to realize that their vitality uh, as uh, undergirded by a healthy lifestyle and attention to things such as the impact of medications they take, you know, all of this has to be looked at more comprehensively and in a more integrated manner to help resolve some of these problems. And just one last point on that, as you pointed out, uh, you know, these are these kinds of distressing problems, even if they're, you know, not like many medical conditions immediately linked to some life-threatening uh, disease, we now understand from uh, many sources, and Dr. Gio Espinoza's, um, uh, some of his chapters, and also a chapter by Dr. Lamb of NYU, points out that the obesity epidemic is now also a big yeah. part of yeah. problems for men, uh, and I assume women and, and also. that might be at play in, in the... Uh in the, in the younger individuals who suffer from uh, ED. Uh, and then among women, uh, fertility problems are rampant. So, exactly. you know, we're seeing, I mean, I think there was some very, very dramatic statistic about how we're going in reverse in terms of fertility in this country. The only group uh, in the U.S. that's experiencing an increase in fertility, interestingly, is the 40-plus age group. And a lot of that's through assisted reproductive technology. Mm -hmm. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're less fertile some of it may be due to choice, you know, waiting too long, but some of it may be mm -hmm. due to uh, pollutants and diet and stress. And, you know, that's a whole uh, realm in and of itself. Absolutely. And, you know, again, citing one more, you know, you keep raising these topics that we actually do address directly in the book, as you are aware. There's a chapter on uh, environmental contaminants, chemicals in the environment that affect our bodies and that really are uh, incontrovertibly affecting things such as fertility. Uh, these are called estrogen uh, uh, disruptors, and many chemicals that we routinely are exposed to uh, may have an estrogenic effect, not just on women, but also on men, and they can be responsible for fertility issues, feminization in men, especially if these are lifelong exposures starting when uh, people are very young. Um, they certainly, they, they're reputed perhaps to uh, be involved with weight gain. Many different chemical processes in the body could be affected by these uh, many sources of pollution and uh, environmental contaminants. Indeed. Well, so let's switch gears and let's talk a little bit about acupuncture. You know, acupuncture, uh, you know, we're steeped in the world of integrative medicine, but 
to keep perspective on this, there are actually uh, naysayers out there who say that acupuncture is bunk. But it's basically a big uh, placebo effect. And, uh, you know, it doesn't do much good. Uh, right. Your take on, on that critique. Well, uh, again, I want to say first to your audience, I am no expert on Chinese medicine per se. Uh, my expertise is that I was trained in research, as you point out, and after getting my PhD years ago at NYU in, in a research area of psychology and then segueing more into neuroscience as that developed, and then eventually coming to Columbia University Medical Center and the Rosenthal Center in the late 90s, I did have years then of exposure to NIH-funded uh, research there and other projects we initiated with many different faculty. So this is to establish my bona fides as a researcher, mm-hmm. well-trained in, in uh, understanding uh, the nature of research and what it shows and what it doesn't show. But that's, 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 good, that's, that's good in a way because it's not like you have skin in the game. You are uh, an objective researcher. You're dedicated to very high standards of uh, scientific veracity. And uh, yeah, I think you're, you're going to call it as you see it. You know, when it comes to rigorous, uh, you know, research findings. Yes, that's absolutely right. I certainly hope I'll always hold to that standard. I, I intend to. That's my my training and my uh, ethic. And I have to say that there are people who come to train in Chinese medicine who, you know, are very dedicated. The students uh, that I've encountered are people from. I just want to say a few things about who who comes in our modern world in America who comes to study uh, acupuncture uh, out of a conviction that it can really help people. I'll get to what the evidence shows in a minute, but uh, these are people often who have some other kind of integrative medicine training. They might be a massage therapist or a physiotherapist of some kind, or they uh, might have some other kind of integrative medicine involvement. They're all ages, all ethnicities and backgrounds, a very diverse place. It's the Tri-State College of Acupuncture today, by the way. It had a different name when you studied there. Uh, And it's here in New York City, and the other main school is the Pacific College uh, here in New York City. And of course, around the country, there are a number of schools, and anyone interested in looking into training can always uh, avail themselves of the ACAOM website. That's uh, the accrediting council for all these schools of acupuncture. So I do want to make the point to your listeners that all of these schools are highly regulated. This is not just some somebody deciding to start a little school somewhere and train mm-hmm. people in these interesting ancient Chinese or Asian methods. They are all accredited the way modern uh, uh, schools of any kind, universities, uh, medical schools, and so on, have to be evaluated and accredited. Uh, and uh, there are certain standards standards for the master's, which leads to master's in acupuncture, which leads to licensure as an LAC or a licensed acupuncturist. And uh, these standards are very high in my experience. And so as someone who's experienced academic standards, not just at NYU, but at Harvard, where my, I did my undergraduate work years ago, so and at Columbia for years. So I'm impressed with what I see in the field that way. So who are these people? Again, uh, all ages and backgrounds. They might be career changers, changers, people who started careers in areas usually not to do with medicine. And also there are often people who come to this field because they or someone they know was greatly helped by acupuncture and Chinese medicine where Western medicine somehow failed them or did not have something to offer for the condition that they had. So that's a story you frequently hear at the school. It's very striking to me. 
So these are all hardworking people. It's a really rigorous program. They give up a lot for three years to train and uh, get tremendous amount of hands-on uh, exposure at uh, the tri-state school. And now uh, I've been hired. There was a minimal course in acupuncture research methods before, but you know it takes a certain combination of expertise uh, to plunge into the area that uh, I am in. And the director of the school, I guess, realized that uh, I would be a good addition to their faculty because I have so much research background, and yet I also have been involved with integrative medicine research. So now what I do is I'm the person instructing the acupuncture students on what we know about the evidence, about clinical research evidence, basic science, qualitative research. There's a, an explosion of literature in all of these areas. And I have to say, some of the acupuncture students are not thrilled to have to be learning this because <laughs> they feel... Right. We're preaching <laughs> you know, to the choir already, and they, they're, 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 <laughs> they, they, they were sold at hello. That's right. They were sold, and, you know, they believe in the clinical benefits. That's, you know, a good thing that keeps them involved, but they have to recognize that many of them will need to be working uh, in hospitals with yeah. doctors. Increasingly, mm -hmm. the worlds are mixing. Yeah. They have to be able to explain this kind of thing they to They have to be proper emissaries of, of the field, right. I think, and represent the field uh, as a, a scientific endeavor that's acceptable within a, a conventional med medical setting. And, you know, that's just the reality of it. Yes, that's the reality. Some are much more interested than others. Some really, uh, they not just understand why they have to learn this, but they embrace it. Others, you know, are more recalcitrant. But I, I think that all of them wind up uh, learning a lot from these courses that helps them. And that's not least because, to me, as someone now really steeping myself in this research literature, to me, studying acupuncture really raises many fascinating questions for Western medicine, as well as being the path to justifying acupuncture to the wider medical world and saying why it should be used and whether it should be reimbursed by insurance and when it should be a, a go-to option. So it raises many fascinating questions, especially when you get into the basic science research literature. How does it work? Uh, why does it work? So we'll, we'll touch on all of that. Well, so pretend I'm a... a, a a very skeptical uh, chief of internal medicine at a traditional uh, hospital. Right. And, uh, you know, as they say, uh, convince me I'm from Missouri, you know. Okay. Well, that's the show me state, isn't it? Exactly. Right. Okay. They're their state motto. Uh, so, all right. Uh, I'll start with an article, actually, that's in what we call qualitative research. It was written, actually, by one of the faculty at the Tri-State School and some colleagues, Dr. Basha Kilchinska, who's herself... Uh, licensed acupuncturist and an MD, and uh, she was part of a whole group at Beth Israel Medical Center before it got converted into part of Mount Sinai. Uh, and uh, she's uh, she and her colleagues were studying the acceptance, acceptability of acupuncture on an inpatient service in a hospital. I presume possibly at Beth Israel years ago, but I don't know for mm -hmm. sure. They didn't identify the hospital in their paper. They did a lot and of what, addiction management, I believe, at Beth, Beth Israel. There was a traditional uh, department within BI, and I see. possibly they may have utilized acupuncture adjunctively. I'm not sure. Well, actually, this her paper doesn't uh, touch on addiction management. It's true. I'll say a little more about that later. It's true that one of the famous uses of acupuncture actually initiated here in New York, mm -hmm. I believe, by Dr. Michael Smith. Yep. I'm not certain about that. Lincoln Hospital, right, right here. Exactly. In the, uh, right here in uh, Harlem. Exactly. He pioneered this so-called NADA protocol. I forget what NADA stands for, but 
some of you may be aware that acupuncture, so there are the, uh, there's the whole concept in Chinese medicine of the meridians, uh, which uh, basically diagram a kind of energy flow in the body, a little more about all that later. And along the meridians are many uh, acupuncture points, we could call them canonical points, they're points identified in traditional Chinese medicine going back hundreds, thousands of years. Uh, sometimes there are other points, special points or other points that are not on the meridians. And there are also areas of the body that are considered to be a kind of micro-acupuncture uh, locus. And the ear, the whole ear, outer ear structure is considered such a, as a uh, locus. And the NADA protocol involves needling a special pattern of points in the outer ear. Uh, there are other protocols that focus only on this so-called auricular acupuncture. And that NADA protocol was seen to be quite effective in helping uh, patients with various addictions. A lot of uh, the ear acupuncture can be kind of stress-reducing. And uh, modern science tells us that one reason why that is so, and there are other protocols, for example, there's a so-called battlefield acupuncture protocol, mm -hmm. needing only the oracle or the outer ear, uh, and it's used by the military today, by the way, and in fact, the VA has been mandating uh, having acupuncturists in their hospitals. This is all taken quite seriously by the military. Uh, these protocols, if you especially needle points more in the inner part of the outer ear, what's called the concha, sort of the little funnely part heading into the, the head and the brain, that area stimulates, upregulates the vagus nerve, one of yes. our most powerful mm -hmm. uh, neural systems in the body, which then increases our parasympathetic nervous system activity. And this has a calming effect. Mm -hmm. So it works for that reason. You know, it's sort of the anti-fight-or-flight uh, reflex. That's absolutely right. You know, it sort of calms the sympathetic nervous system, which is underpinning the whole arousal fight-or-flight mechanism, and upregulates these parasympathetics called rest and digest, or the Madonna reflex, various terms. But basically, it's it's a relaxation counterpoint to the high arousal, mobilize the muscles and the uh, aggression and so on pattern of human behavior. And acupuncture directly stimulates the vagus nerve. In this, it's a little bit like some kinds of brain stimulation about which we can talk later. Mm -hmm. Um, so, let's see, the paper that I started out mentioning, Dr. Kilchinska's paper with others, what they did was they brought some acupuncture trainees or grad, recent grads into a regular medical service, I forget, it might have been a surgical service of some kind, and they wanted to see how well it would be accepted. This falls under qualitative research because they weren't investigating, is acupuncture good to heal a certain medical problem? That would be a clinical study of some kind. And they weren't investigating a basic science question about uh, what's a mechanism of action of acupuncture, what does it do, and how does it do it. They were looking at the larger social context, the larger medical world context, and basically you get data from those kinds of situations through interviews and questionnaires and so on. And, and in brief, what they found was that when doctors saw that when their patients who were agitated and upset, either they had a medical issue or they were about to have a surgery or something, and the acupuncturist would treat them before they had to go for a procedure, and they were then much calmer and, um, you know, were able to deal with the procedure better. Maybe they had less pain. Um, you know, things were working more smoothly. So doctors who had no knowledge of acupuncture and might be still quite skeptical about it were nonetheless impressed that their patients 
emotional and uh, kind of behavioral status could be quickly shifted into a much more calm or more pain-free status, allowing them to proceed with the next step in their treatment, possibly a surgery or some other intervention that was problematic or, you know, hard to get them to, uh, you know, be on board for or tolerate in some way at that point. So, uh, you know, you as the chief of this, uh, the skeptical chief of this unit, you might be, you might say to yourself, I don't have to accept everything that might be said about acupuncture, mm -hmm. but I see from research like that, that it does some good in terms of pragmatic clinical uh, behaviors, uh, things relevant to my service, so I might be willing to try it. And this is often a, you know, you could say it's a kind of gateway, gateway exposure, not a drug, but, you know, a gateway exposure. And sometimes medical people who are highly skeptical, they are involved with some episode like that, and then they're willing to be a little more open-minded. I want to mention in that context that we've started a little bit of a mini program at the Tri-State School. I personally have started where we invite um, medical students. We now have med students from some of our medical schools, fourth-year students who do an elective, and they choose to do an elective in integrative medicine. And we now invite small groups of them at a time, and also pre-meds and, and uh, residents, to come to the school for a couple of weeks. Uh, it's a, a free program that we offer on a restricted basis. We have limited room for people and limited manpower for this, but we, we really want future doctors to have an exposure that will help them keep mm -hmm. an open mind about acupuncture. At the very and, least, you know, to, to, you know, to familiarize them with it as an option. Yes. You know, they don't necessarily yes. have to embrace it, become, you know, trained acupuncturists, you know, with uh, full buy-in. But right. at the very least, they need to know that it has a place uh, in the constellation of medical modalities that are at their disposal. And, and you know, I think that that's, that's a big advance, at least that it has been uh, introduced. This is a good point at which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And we've laid okay. the groundwork for our discussion of acupuncture with today's guest. She's Dr. Janet Mindes, 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 excuse me. Um, and they're all correct. <laughs> they're all, yeah, you're used to this, I'm sure. I am. And, uh, you know, her background is in uh, research, but she's been uh, intensely involved uh, in studying uh, acupuncture and teaching acupuncture students and uh, uh, medical students and young physicians about uh, complementary and alternative medicine from a, a scientific perspective. In part two, we're going to continue our deep dive into what acupuncture is, how it uh, might work, what it's good for, perhaps what it's not. Uh, and also, uh, we're going to touch upon a, a related uh, modality, related not in the sense that it involves needles, but in that it works on the brain. It's called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. It so happens that Dr. Mindis initiated and is co-investigator on a study using TMS uh, and we'll find out more about that. So stay with us. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.